Tonight, let us conclude our studies in Ephesians. This is our 32nd lesson. We've been at this quite some time. We started in this room. We went to other rooms on other campuses. We went to other rooms inside of that campus. We went back to our room, and then we land right back here where we started. It has been a long journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It has been a joyful journey for me uh, to re-explore for the I don't know how many times, um, and you're the same way that we've all been through the book of Ephesians, but every time these things are, are they, they hold kind of new treasures somewhere you, somewhere along the way your life changes and therefore the story seems to change. I got a call today from a listener who's been listening for years and wanted to thank us for the nuggets of grace. These are these little seven or eight minute video clips that my video guy snippets out of sermons over the last 10 or 15 years and he puts up seven or eight minutes every day so that there's a sort of just something out there, you know, to help people. And I don't have a lot to do with those. Thankfully, that's one thing I don't have to do. And so uh, Eric um, does a great job with those for me. And so we got a call from someone that said, I don't know who's running your nuggets of grace, but tell them, thank you for listening to the Holy Spirit because I can't tell you the days when the nugget says something exactly where I need it. And he said, and the, and the great thing is that I've heard these sermons before. They said, in fact, I've sat in live on some of them, but I didn't hear what that nugget said. And they said, and that's just a testimony, a testament to the fact that as you go down the road, the word sounds different to your ear because you're in a different spot. Tonight, I want to close this out with a phrase that comes near the end of the whole armor of God passage, but I also want to read on out. Um, We're going to get through Paul's closing and all of that. We'll land at the end of Ephesians at the end of tonight. But uh, going into it, I want to set up as a a subtitle tonight, the Word of God. And I want to deal with this through Paul's version of the Word of God. But I've also been doing some digging. I want to try to reach back into our church fathers, into the history of the church, to try and land on what they thought about this style, this kind of passage. Because from a modern lens, we've talked about the whole armor of God as this sort of put this piece on, put this piece on, you know, build yourself up, pray this piece on, and, and, and how it's kind of militant, and, and maybe it's got machine guns and tanks and whatever. And, but those are modern lenses, and they, they, they can't help but be influenced through modern ways of thinking. Our whole military apparatus is also influenced through our, our culture, our government, the, the type of country we live in, and the stories that bring, have brought us into this room, the stories of revolution, the stories of the Civil War. And I'm talking in the United States. And of course, viewers and listeners from all over the world who have your own sort of military history and, and all of those things associated with armor and weaponry. So whether we like it or not, they all sort of get shoved into these, these ideas. And then we have to filter them out as Christians and say, okay, what part of this is relevant to the armor of God. But then we have a second layer, which is what part of this was relevant to their armor of God? Because the Roman Empire is not necessarily what we're in, but what, what part of that's similar to what we're in? What part of that is different than what we're in? So to set us up, let's go ahead and read out. And to do that, I, I actually want to read through the whole armor of God again. Not going to reteach it, but context, context, context. 
And we'll do that a couple of times tonight because it's, it's, it's one thing to know where a verse is. It's another thing to know what's in front of it, what's behind it. Sometimes that's of most importance. And so let's start in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, and then read on out. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles or the tricks of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I want to remind you of something we've said every week and it's worth saying over and over and over again. Contrast. The contrast is the natural with the supernatural, the visible with the invisible, the what you can touch with what you can't touch. But what is real with what is also real. Don't, don't think that because one's flesh and the other's spiritual that one is real and the other's not. And so Paul's just simply trying to shift the way his reader thinks. Therefore, in light of the information that it's not a natural battle, but a supernatural battle, then take up the whole armor of God, not the whole armor of man, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we worked through all of these kind of systematically. Above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation. Here's where we were last week. The sword of the Spirit. We walked through the whole sword analogy. We're not finished with the sword analogy tonight because it needs this, which is the Word of God. We left that off last week so that the sword could be understood as an item, as a thing. Because without that, then it gets conflated. We're going to conflate it tonight. But, but you're, you're better equipped because you've done this, the work on the sword. Now pick up the Word of God and put it in there with that sword. So really, tonight is about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But we're going to isolate the Word of God as its own thing. And then notice the very next line. And it's easy to just stop. But don't. And I know Paul doesn't put a semicolon here. No more than Paul puts a period, or no more than Paul capitalizes a letter. He doesn't, because he's writing in Greek, and they don't have that kind of syntax. But notice the flow, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Spirit, line three. Spirit kicks off line two. These are connected words. So the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, how would you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? You would pray always with prayer and supplication in the same spirit. It's not, not a different subject. The sword of the spirit, praying in the spirit. Big, big S, little S, talked about that last week. I don't know. We don't know for sure if it's sword of the Holy Spirit or sword of the spirit, meaning sword that's invisible. But we do know it's the spirit. And the spirit is something that comes from inside out. So the sword of my spirit, the sword of his spirit, I'm doing the praying. The Lord's not doing the praying. I'm praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And it certainly seems as if Paul is meaning for a capital S Spirit on that one. I'm praying, but I'm praying in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, because the Holy Spirit's in me, and I'm praying out, thus the sword that comes out of me is the word of God springing forth from my mouth. It seems to be the connection that Paul is making in this passage. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. For the most part, that's the whole armor of God. But let's read out. And for me that utterance may be given to me, 
He, see, I'm praying for you that the sword of the Spirit would come out of your mouth. You pray for me that the utterance may also be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So once again, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the prayers of the saints coming out of their mouth. I'm hoping that you guys pray. He goes, by the way, pray for me too. Pray that I also will open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. That means Paul's in prison when he writes this. That in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. Tychicus probably delivers the Ephesian letter. Whom I sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and then he may comfort your hearts. And then the final two verses, and we'll come back to these to land tonight. Peace to the brethren. Love with faith from God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So leave that alone for now. Um, let's get back in the whole armor of God mind frame. Whole armor of God, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How did those early Christians, and I, I want to move past Paul. Paul definitely gives you his ideas of your weapons are carnal, they're not natural, they're mighty through God, they're spiritual. We know how Paul thought. We definitely know how Jesus thought. Put your sword up. <laughs> Permit even this. Live by the sword, you die by the sword. Okay, we know how they thought. And, and I'm a disciple of Jesus. So at the end of the day, whatever everybody else thinks, I, I want to follow Jesus. So I'm going to go back to what Jesus... But I do find it very fascinating how the early fathers answered some of the questions that come up now in regards to these texts. So done a little digging and... I want to try to get to the bottom of this idea of what happens if everyone takes this attitude. Okay, because that's always what people ask. What happens if everyone takes the attitude that we're not supposed to take up the sword? What happens if the whole world... Well, first of all, then the whole world has decided to follow Jesus. So I think you've created quite a scenario where everyone made the decision to follow Christ. I think I'd like to try that. Like I'd be willing to give that a shot at risk that everything is in trouble because nobody picks up the sword. Okay, I would rather us all follow Jesus and figure it out later. Um, I know that people are building straw men arguments because we love to do that, which is always create something that's impossible so that you can try to corner somebody with an answer. But at the same time, it is valid because we live in a world where security is a big thing and, and stability and and so how do we take it serious? Because I could just be flippant and go, well, you know, if everybody did that, everybody would be saved. Ha, ha, ha. Move on. Don't answer the question. Well, that's not doing anybody any good. So how do we, what, what, what would happen if everyone took this attitude? Um, and so as I try to answer that, I want to answer it. Let's, let's get some help. Okay, because you, you know how I feel about it. But in getting help, I mean, let's go back. Let's get as close to that source and see how others have answered this. I want to start with this proposition. Does our fear, not a proposition as much as a question, okay. does our fear of what would happen in the world if we all refuse to take up the sword, does that not show that at the end of the day, we think that the armor of man is more powerful than the armor of God? I and mean, that's a question we should at least wrestle with. And maybe I posed it. Maybe it was, that was a word salad. Let me try again. Um, if you're freaked out that not taking up the sword will destroy things and mess the world up, 
Just be sure you're not more confident in the gun and the missile and the bomb than you are in the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit. Because that was Paul's, at the end of the day, what we've tried to do for a few weeks is Paul says, look, our warfare weapons are not natural. They're supernatural. This is what you get to use. So if you think that if too many people used these, the world will go to hell because everybody else would have the real weapons. Are you more confident in the real weapons than you are the whole armor of God? And that's where our church fathers put their foot was to go, how confident are you in the whole armor of God as opposed to other things? To visit this, um, let's visit a, a, a philosopher, Celsus. Late second century, Celsus wrote a series of articles, books called The True Word, um, literally used the Greek word logos, the true logos, a critique Essentially, and these are my words, but essentially the true word is a critique of monotheism. Judaism's thrown in pretty heavily, but his real critique is Christianity. Um, Celsus lived in the second century. He did most of his work around 170, 180. He vehemently opposed monotheism. He wouldn't have been what we might have landed on as an atheist. That didn't really exist in the Greco-Roman world. Um, atheism as in that respect is more a product of modernity um, than it is the ancient world. So Celsus wrote hard against Christianity based upon what he thought it did to Christians. He accused them as a whole of being irresponsible citizens. Citizen might not be the word he would have used, but basically irresponsible countrymen because Celsus felt like, and he even says in the true word, they wall themselves off and break away from the rest of mankind. So one of the things that infuriated him about Christianity was their refusal to be a part of the system and the fact that they would separate themselves so severely. Kelsus' great criti uh, criticism was of that. So let me give you a direct quote from Kelsus, and I'll explain the source of this quote in a moment. If everyone were to do the same as you, this is a pointed finger by Kelsus to the Christians of the second century. If everyone were to do the same as you, there'd be nothing to prevent the emperor from being abandoned, alone, deserted, while earthly things would come into the power of the most lawless and savage barbarians. Slick way of saying, if everyone thought like you guys, the world would go to hell because the bad guys would take up guns and the bad guys would win. So if, if everyone decided that they weren't gonna pick up the natural weapons of warfare, then the, then the world would win and the bad guys would win. We've heard this argument. And we've heard this argument in different strains, right? Different sentences. The reason I say Kelsus as quoted by Origen, Origen is um, probably the brightest mind of the early third century, born in the late second century. By the sixth century, most of his works were abandoned by the Catholic Church. He was considered heretical because he believed that in the end, there's a chance everybody gets to get saved. And by the sixth century, they weren't having any of that. Um, it could be considered pretty dangerous to building. They thought it could be pretty dangerous to building a church if people thought that maybe in the end, everybody ended up saved. Um, I think it's a, 
I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's dangerous to building a church unless you think the church can only be built by the fear of people needing to get saved to be spared from eternal punishment. I would really like to live for Christ because I get to taste the life of God. But that's a separate argument. Well, Origen's been dead a long time. He can take it up with them on his own. Um, in his day, probably the brightest mind. Um, however, we don't have Celsus's true word. We don't have Celsus's writings from the second century. All we have is Origen's critique of Celsus's writing. So Celsus actually only lives on because he's critiqued by a Christian apologist named Origen. So that's why I quote him through Origen. Let me give you what I find quite fascinating from Origen. Origen countered Celsus. He countered that Christians were more effective at bringing peace and security because they took up the whole armor of God. And in his writing, he quotes Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, Christians take up the whole armor of God, therefore they actually bring more peace and security. Origen taught that through prayer, believers destroy all demons which stir up wars, violate oaths, and disturb the peace. I just want you to remember this is written, this is early third century, against the critique that Christians need to get more involved. They need to be willing to take up arms for empire. He admitted that Christians would not fight for the emperor, but they were a, quote, special army of piety through their intercessions to God. Spiritual warfare leads to the destruction of everything which is hostile to those who act rightly. In other words, Origen actually taught that Christians pray and therefore the power of their prayer is the expression of the whole armor of God and that Christians take that seriously and that because they are a praying group, they are more effective at bringing peace on earth than any sharpened sword. And that was the stance of the church at large early third century. That essentially said, we believe in the whole armor of God more than we believe in the whole armor of the emperor. And therefore, we don't take up the emperor's arms because we have our own. In a great sort of spiritual contrast, you could say, we don't put on Saul's weapons of war. We take our five smooth stones from the creek. We take what we have rather than what, remember when Saul offers David his armor? Here, you're going to go fight Goliath? Take my, my armor. And David tries it on and it doesn't fit. So he takes it off and he picks up a slingshot and, three, and five rocks and he walks out onto the battlefield. He takes what he knows. He takes what's his. He takes what belongs to him. And he goes into battle with that. And so the, the thought process is that what belongs to the believer is the whole armor of God. What belongs to the believer is the power of prayer. And that believers could take that power of prayer and do more good for the world by praying. Even as I say this, you, even as it comes out of my mouth, you think, gosh, it's so naive. It's so naive to think that the world would be so much better if Christians prayed. And just the fact that even that crosses my mind tells me how infatuated that I have become by the systems of the world over the whole armor of God. That, that if I hear it coming out of my own mouth and go, gosh, does it really work? Like if Christians if we actually believed in the whole armor of God and the expression of prayer and praise out of our mouth as, as the weapons of our warfare, 
more than we believed in everything else. And, you, and, and I think it's too easy for us to go, well, we really do believe that, Pastor. We really do believe that if we pray. But then at the end of the day, even our eschatology belies it because it says, well, at the end, if he has to, Jesus will use the weapons of this earth to dominate this earth because in the end, that's what really gets people's attention is bloodshed. What really gets people's attention is the hammer falls. And I don't want to go back to it. I know I go back to it over and over and over again, but I truly can't help but believe that if we became a people who believed in this as the counter to all that's going on in the world, we would not find solace in the fact that we could pick up the sword and and the powers of this world and use it for good. We wouldn't find solace in that. We would find that there's no picking it up to use it for good. Not when we have our own set of armor. It's like David looks at that armor of Saul and he goes, I can't go fight in this. This is the kind of armor that you think would beat Goliath. But I can't use this to beat Goliath. I can only use what's familiar to me. I can only use what I've been practicing. And so, slingshot. Rock drops the giant. But that's... I'm not here to argue whether the David and Goliath story is real. Please, I'm just here to say that that whole thing's an allegory. Maybe it really happened, but the whole thing is bigger than that. Because if it... If it's just that it really happened, then what that teaches you is that if you meet somebody really big in your life, kill them. Well, the story's got to mean more than that. Hey, kids, are you getting bullied at school? Here's what you do. Tomorrow, hit the guy as hard as you can between the eyes, and when he falls down, smash his skull into the concrete until he's dead, and say, thus saith the Lord. No, the story's more than that. It's got to be more than that. that. That's fatalism if we end up with taking it only literal. But if we take it to mean something more, then God's shepherd has been sitting on the hills, writing the songbook of the Hebrews, praising God out of his mouth, playing his instruments, um, writing the poetry that informs the theology of the ancient world. And he pulls out of that stream, out of the river that's inside, the river of living water. He pulls out the only weapon that you can when you face the giants of this world. And that's the weapon you've been, that's the thing you've been digging. It's the thing you've been doing. It's the thing you've been practicing. Because he kills a lion and he kills a bear. And he takes that silence, that pool, that depth of water, and he takes that to the battlefield and he refuses the sword and the shield and the helmet and the spear. Even though that makes sense, that's how you kill giants. You don't kill giants with your stupid guitar playing out here writing the shepherd's psalm. That's not how you kill giants. You see what I'm trying to, what David brings all the David is. He goes, I can't use this stuff. I don't know this stuff, but I do know me. And I know what I can do, and I know what I have. And, and at the end of the day, he brings onto the battlefield something entirely different. And, and that, in so many ways, is us as the people of God, that we do swear off the armor of the world to pick up the armor of God. Because what we're talking about is the Word of God. Now, let's put that on pause. Um, Let's leave it. You already know or believe what you believe about the armor of God. And, and hopefully that what we've done over these weeks is to push you a little bit and to get you to think a little bit. You don't have to land where I land on it. Because frankly, 
I'm at a wrestling match in my own spirit with what this looks like. And I just admitted to you that even to me, and I'm not happy about that, but even to me, I go, is it not naive to think that our answer is to prayer, is prayer and praise? And the fact that I even think maybe it's naive means that maybe I don't take the whole armor of God as serious as I could or should. Um, so I'm going to put it on pause. And I want to go back to Ephesians 6, and I want to reread it again. And I want to isolate from the sword. Let's, let's just get onto the Word of God. Because if we're, if we're going to take the sword serious, our sword, sword of the Spirit, well, man, we need to know what we're doing. Because if you are going to face Goliath, and you're not going to use their weapons, you better know how to use yours. Okay? I mean, if you're not going to use Saul's sword and Saul's spear, you go, I'm going to use what I know. Okay. Tell me what you know. And it's one thing to go, I'm going to use what I know. And then when you get, when you get told, okay, tell me what you know. You go, oh, that's not good. You know, the rock's just flying out in the middle of nowhere. So it needs to be able to hit its mark. To do that, we need to know what the sword is made of. The sword is the word of God. So let's reread it. 1718, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's unambiguous. It's not even a question. Paul doesn't even leave room. Sword of the spirit could be 10 things. No, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And how do we use it? We pray always with prayer and supplication of the Spirit. We're watchful to the end with all perseverance. Now, here's the Word of God verse of the New Testament. Hebrews 4.12. This is the one that gets quoted. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Okay. You've, how many of you have heard this verse in relation to this book? Okay, yeah, me too. And I've done it. I've used it to say, and you know, hold it up. The Word of God. This is alive. How many of you have heard the Bible's alive? And we go, okay, by the way, I actually think it's a pretty good metaphor that the Bible's alive. Simply for what we said at the beginning tonight. That as you go down the road, it changes. The way it, it did nothing change. I mean, it reads the same way, but I don't hear it the same way. Because I'm alive, and because I'm alive, and it's alive, it sounds different when I'm farther down the road of life. Okay, So in that case, I love that phrase, the Bible is alive. But that's not what this verse says. <laughs> this verse doesn't say that the Bible is sharp and quick and more powerful than any two-edged sword. Because this verse is not a description of the Bible. The Bible as we know it is not a chronological history book. First of all, it's not even chronological, much less a chronological history book. And next week in our introduction to Ruth, one of the things we're going to introduce is both where Ruth sits in the Christian Bible and where Ruth sat or sits in the Hebrew scriptures. They are not the same spot. And we're going to point out why, or at least maybe why. And part of that reason why we did that is because we've had an insistence on chronology. Our minds like things to go beep, boop, beep, beep, in a row, A, B, C, D, even if they actually went A, D, C, F, B. We don't like that. That's craziness. So they need to do this. And so we've made it into a chronological history. So go, this happened there, this happened there, this happened there. You might be surprised to know that some of those books nestled way back in the Old Testament probably should have went farther up and a couple of those way up should have went way closer to the back 
And if you can land on why, you might start to get to the bottom of what the story is trying to say. And so stop it with the Bible's chronological. Stop it with the Bible's historic. The ancient world wasn't writing history. They weren't thinking in terms of historically record these events so future generations can understand them. But rather, they were a collection of works. Redacted, reorganized, translated more times than we know how to count, even into the time of Christ. Not even Jesus was dealing with original Hebrew when Jesus was dealing with Scripture. What it does is record mankind's encounters with God all the way through. How man speaks to God, sees God, interprets God, understands God. What it really is doing is attempting to understand both the God it's writing about and the men who are writing about God. So the stories of the Bible are an attempt to understand God through the eyes of Noah, through the eyes of a David, through the eyes of an Abraham, through the eyes of a Jeremiah. And that's why it sounds different as you read each book. So it's an attempt to get through to God, to see God correctly, and an attempt to understand the men and the women who are attempting to see God. And this is why in Christian terms, when we get to Jesus, we have them saying to Jesus, just show us a father. And Jesus goes, how long do I got to be with you until you realize if you see me, you've seen the father. I know this is brand new information. You never could have imagined this because you've had skewed versions of what my dad looked like for so long that it, you've missed it when it's right in front of your face. Why? Because the Bible's not a history book. It's an attempt to tell the stories about God through the lens of different people. Actually, through the lens of 44 different writers who wrote 66 different books in three different languages across 1,400 years. And that's just the one we end up with. Not counting the ones that didn't make the cut, that were, that were in their time equally thought of or read from. And so look at it as that attempts to understand and then know that as Christians, it's the foundational text in our understanding of Christ. Don't lose that idea. Why do I like this? Why do I love reading this? Because I've stopped reading it as a chronological history book. I've stopped reading it as, a, as inerrant. Nobody in here ever wrote anything down that there's any mistakes or problems. I don't read it that way. I read it as the foundational sacred text about my Savior. Where I can find Him, I find Him. And I embrace him in those texts. And so the Bible then becomes the foundational sacred text for seeing Jesus. And this last sentence I actually wrote and then rewrote because I thought it needed some clarification. The word of God should not be confused with words about God or words inspired by God. These are words about God. And these are words inspired by God. But they are not the Word of God. How do I know? Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 13 And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The Word of God is not an it. The Word of God is a Him. And as early as the writer to the Hebrews, who's coming through Judaism and into faith in Christ, as early as that book, 
They identify the Word of God not as written Scripture, but as the hymn of written Scripture. That the Word of God takes flesh. John, who probably writes the last book of all of the books of the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In Him is light, and the light is the life of men. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. And no man hath seen God at any time, but we have beheld Him in the only begotten one, Christ. So what's John trying to do? He's trying to close the whole canon by saying, in the beginning, God's word existed. I've met him. His name was Jesus. His name is Jesus. That's how we see the face of God. And the author of Hebrews doesn't just throw in some pronoun. The word of God is living and no creature is hidden from his sight. Top line, next to last line. Just jump. For the word of God is living and powerful and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked. I'm not cutting the Bible, cut and paste. Just showing you that even within the context, the writer isn't identifying a book or a scripture, but a person. And so the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, becomes the sword that I can use in the spirit realm is not just this, Actually, not even this. The sword that I can use in the spirit realm becomes whatever Jesus looks like and sounds like, that becomes my offensive weapon. That becomes the thing that I get to use. Okay. This is beautiful. But even it screams for context. Because Hebrews 4.12 doesn't just pop out of nowhere. Like you're just lollygagging along in Hebrews 4, and then all of a sudden the writer goes, hey, by the way, for the word of God is sharp, quick, powerful, and more two-edged sword. And you go, where'd that come from? That's out of left field. It's not out of left field. He's actually been building this case for a while. And so to do that, I was very tempted to do this really in-depth study of Hebrews 3 and 4. <laughs> That's going to take months. So let's don't try. Instead, let's do a little contextual work with Hebrews 3. A little contextual work with Hebrews 4 and then immediate contextual work with our text from Hebrews 4.12. So here, let's start here. Hebrews 3.12. 3.12. I know. Whole chapter back. I let myself go one chapter back. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Exhort one another daily while it's called Today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So it's, a, it's a, 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 a bright warning that flashes in the middle of chapter 3, heading into chapter... It's not the middle. This is near the end of chapter 3. Heading into chapter 4. Chapter 4 is going to kind of help clean up what this beware is all about. Exhort each other. Actually, exhort one another is closer in the Greek to exhort yourself. So it's, think about this. The writer says, beware lest any of you have an evil heart of unbelief and departed from the living God. Exhort yourself daily while it's called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So you need something. Something's welling up inside of you that builds you up in the middle of a deceitful and hardened world. All right, that's what we're working towards. 14. For we've become partakers of Christ 
If we behold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Pay attention to today, if you will hear his voice. So the, the key to your softened heart in the realm of the spirit is hear his voice. The key to this encouragement, encourage yourself, encourage one another. The key is hear his voice, word of God. Hear what he has to say to you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Here's one, the only moment I can see in the New Testament where the believer is encouraged to fear. And of course, it's a different kind of fear than we are addressing in, say, 1 John's letter, but there's a promise of remaining to rest. The only thing I ought to worry about is if I miss the rest of God. That's verse 1. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as it was to them. That's Israel in the wilderness. But the word that Israel heard didn't profit them because they didn't mix it with faith in the people that heard it. So God spoke to them about what they were to do in going over into the promised land. They didn't mix that with faith, and therefore they wandered in the wilderness. And the previous chapter says they wandered in the wilderness until they carcassed in the wilderness. A powerful word that means Israel stayed in the wilderness until she died. And only the generation that believed was able then to go into the promised land. We have the same kind of rest. Let's don't miss it. They missed it. Let's not miss it. All right? Next. Verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Um, Joshua is Moses' successor. He takes the children of Israel across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, and then, while in the Promised Land, speaks to them of rest that is to come. And the author of Hebrews says, if the Promised Land was the place they were heading, then he wouldn't have talked about another place of rest. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. So it's more than physical property. There's a spiritual rest that belongs to the people of God. We get to have it the same way that they had it. Verse 10. If he who has entered his rest has ceased from his works as God did from his, let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful. There it is. What's the word? That word that there is a rest that remains for the people of God is permeates chapter 3 and chapter 4 and builds up to this climactic moment where the author says that word is quick, sharp, more powerful. That word will tell you the truth about who you are. Listen for the voice of your father. Listen for the voice of the promise. That becomes the word of God that speaks into your life that says to you what needs to be said to you. So the word of God then isn't the printed text, but the word spoken to us of Christ, the place of our promise. Out of my place of rest, out of my place in Christ, the word of God is spoken. That's all I have. That's the sword of the spirit. Who I am in Christ, who Christ is in me, inside of that place of peace and inside of that place of rest. That's our whole armor. And all of us have to listen for that. We have the word as spoken by Jesus that's written, but we have the ongoing word that is spoken by the Spirit in all of us. This is why a daily relationship with God is part of what we are as followers of Christ. 
because it's in that that it speaks into our moment. It speaks into our life. It builds us up. I've been thinking lately about the building up of yourselves. I just told you a moment ago that, that the scripture better translated is you could build yourself up. And I was praying about that even today. I went back in my mind to that moment where David encourages himself in the Lord. You guys, you remember this moment? The Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. And man, he needed encouraged. And I was praying about that. And I, I feel like I heard the Spirit encouraging me that we've, we've taken that text to mean that the only encouragement we ever need is in ourself. That all we ever have to do is just encourage ourselves. Um, and I think we've taken that I know in my Pentecostal charismatic circles, I took that so far as to believe that I didn't need anybody else's encouragement. All I really needed was my own encouragement. Is nobody else going to encourage you. Just encourage yourself in the Lord. And if you've ever tried that and you're not feeding at all on the encouragement from the outside, the cup that you're dipping down into that well of self-encouragement starts to clank pretty quickly. I don't know if you've ever... Because I've tried it. It's like, I don't need anybody else. I don't need anybody else to encourage me. I'll encourage myself in the Lord, bless God. And then he's reaching down in there to encourage him. He's hitting the, hitting the stone at the bottom of the well. And you're going, there's got to be, there's got to be something in there somewhere. So listen, I do, I, I believe encouraging yourself in the Lord. And I believe it's part of who we are and what we are. But we... The reason why even Origen admits they are the army of the Lord is there's no army of one. Okay? Um, you, you don't do this by yourself. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God of the pulling down of strongholds. This, the sword of the Spirit, the, the, which is the Word of God, is not simply... Me in my private time having heard from God and then that becomes the weapon with which I use against the world. Although that's part of it. I, I cannot emphasize enough how much sharper your sword will be if you allow other people in. It's dangerous. I know, it's risky. You're like, you let other people in, they get hurt, Right? If you don't let other people in, you run the risk of missing the voice of God through a different sound. And we should take that serious. And I, I don't know how to tell you to do that when I'm still, I'm always in practice of that, but learning how to hear the voice of God and then appreciate it through a different instrument, okay? If you play a G note, it's a G, whether it's through a trumpet or a piano, it's a G. <laughs> it's the same note, but it's a different instrument. It's, and, and there's some of that. And I, I think it's just another step in my own development of really embracing the body of Christ as not just an expression of Christ in the earth, but as a means of strength for the other members of the body. Um, and so 
embrace the relationships that are yours, marriage, your children, your church, the people that matter. Listen for the sound of the Word of God through unfamiliar instrumentation. Don't sell your soul to it. Ignore the voice that doesn't have the right to speak into your life. You don't have to take every voice. It's not as if every voice is equal. But pay attention to what the Holy Spirit pays attention to in you. And so I try to, to follow that as a template. And I feel the Holy Spirit turn me towards something. Pay attention to that. And be quick to move on. But don't be so quick to move on you don't hear the sound of the Spirit. I hope I'm saying this right. I didn't put any thought into this. And I mean it. I didn't put any thought into the last like three minutes. You go, well, I can tell. Okay, well, uh, the, the, the reason I say that is because there's sometimes they come up against, you come into some things up here talking that need to be said, but I didn't have any pre-warning for how to say them and I like to formulate them correctly. And so they might end up coming out in a message like two weeks later, two months later, they come out better, but the seed of it is birthed there. So it just strikes me that Paul's speaking corporately to the Ephesian church to put on the whole armor of God and that they all use the sword of the Spirit, encouraging one another's part of it. If that be the case, then this isn't just a private interpretation. This is as I hear the Spirit moving through the people that I respect, I trust, I love, that are part of the body. Um, let's contrast this sword, which is the Word of God. One final contrast, and then we'll land. And of course, you know we're going to Revelation to do this. Revelation 1.16 this is Jesus. He has in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. I don't want to wear you out on Revelation. I don't want to create more questions than answers, but I do want to show you a contrast. And don't miss these kind of contrasts because they're on purpose. Revelation 12, 15. The serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. This is why your Bible doesn't need to be literalism. Because if it's literalism, then you're trying to figure out how this big snake comes up and spits water out and floods this woman. And you're trying to figure out who the woman is and who the snake is. But what John's doing is showing you a contrast in how Jesus fights and how the serpent fights. Okay? Out of Jesus' mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Where have you seen that phrase? The Word of God is quick, sharp, more powerful than a two-edged sword. It's living, divides the various sunder, soul and spirit, divides the joints and the marrow, discerns the thoughts and intents of the hearts, and no creature's hidden from his sight. He knows who you are. When he speaks, he gets to the truth. What happens when the snake speaks? He spews water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman so that he can cause her to be carried away by the floods. What's the snake do when he speaks? Just tries to drown you. So whatever floods you, overwhelms you, beats you up, stresses you out, knocks you down. Welcome to the conversation of the snake. What comes out of the mouth of Christ shows you what you really are. What comes out of the mouth of the serpent destroys, floods, overruns. It repeats the violence of Noah. Revelation 12, 15. It repeats the violence of the serpent just repeats the we'll get them. These are two different ways of fighting. It's the Jesus style and the serpent style. 
And then ultimately we land on the Jesus way in Revelation 19, 11. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful, true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes word. That's not real hard to figure out who this guy is. He's faithful. He's true. He's the one who actually judges and makes war. When in righteousness, watch a difference in a righteous war and an unrighteous war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head's got many crowns. He had a name written on it that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called <laughs> the title of studies in Ephesians number 32. The word of God. His name, which in verse 12, he had a name written on it that only he knew. In verse 13, it goes in and tells what the name is. His name is actually the word of God, but you don't get that revelation until you see his vestige dipped in blood. His robes have been dipped in blood. They haven't had blood splattered on them. Meaning, it's his blood that the robes have been dipped in, that he rides the white horse as the word of God, dipped in his own blood. Here comes Christ, the ultimate warrior. <laughs> The Word of God. His name revealed as the Word of God, wearing a clothed dipped in His own blood. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following Him on white horses. Out of His mouth. It's always out of His mouth. It's never in His hand. You'll never find it in the hand of Jesus. The sword is never in His hand. Out of His mouth goes a sharp sword that with it He should strike the nations. Uh-oh. Violence, right? He Himself will... Rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. I want to pause right there. Terrible, terrible out of the Greek into the English. And it hurts us so badly because we don't... I think sometimes even our translators couldn't help but look for justice through the realm of the devil instead of the realm of God. And you could please look this up, all right, in the Greek, if you want to, when you get home or when you're watching. And you'll find this to be true. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. The word rule is the Greek for shepherd. He himself shall shepherd with a rod of iron. I think the translator saw rod of iron and couldn't figure you'd do anything with a rod of iron but rule. But your shepherd is so... What does a shepherd use the rod for? Does he use the rod on his sheep? Or does he use the rod on things trying to hurt his sheep? What if his rod is a rod of iron? Guess how serious he is about protecting his sheep. So serious, he dips his own clothes in blood, rides the white horse. His name is the word of God. He is the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of his church. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Who is that? It is Christ. It is Christ dipped in blood. It is Christ, the ultimate shepherd. It is Christ, the one who has the rod of iron, who treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. What do you tread a wine press for? What's the end result of treading a wine press? Death? Destruction? Heartache? Or wine? <laughs> you tread a wine press to get an end game. Christ comes treading the wine, the, the anger and fierceness of God's wrath at the end of the Bible has as its end result a vintage of wine the world's never tasted. It doesn't have as its result ashes. It has as its result wine. Here's Christ, whose robes dipped in his own blood, who guards his sheep with a rod of iron, who speaks out 
The very cutting that it takes to divide my soul from my spirit. What's not me from what is me. And the anger that God has in that final hour is to simply crush into oblivion that which isn't drinkable. So that what comes out of the winepress is that which is forever drinkable. The Jesus, the fact that Jesus' ministry opens in John 2 by turning water to wine and the last act of Jesus in Revelation 19 is treading out a new vintage of wine. The prophecy of the wedding of Canaan just simply shows you the end game of God. I will take you from what you are into the very best version of what you could be. And it's going to take me a while, but I'm going to do it really fast at the beginning of my ministry just to show you what it's going to look like. Fill up the water pots. Boom! Water to wine. Best wine we've ever tasted. Jesus goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. Calvary, resurrection, ascension. And the Jesus that appears to you, he's your sword. Get it out of this. You can't pick theirs up if you pick up his. So I salute you, Origen, third century writer, who saw that the answer that the church had to the question of what if everybody acted this way, Origen's response was, it would be the kind of world where we prayed our way into the things of God and by prayer, we shut down the systems of darkness and by prayer, we put a stop to evil and by prayer, we actually believed that our armor was better than the armor of this world. Now, I don't know if you believe that, but I'd like to be fully persuaded personally. Let's close this thing with Paul. Let's close up here. High note, Paul, Ephesians 6, 23, 24. Peace to the brethren. Love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And I say amen. What a great study. What a great journey in Ephesians. Let's pray. And I don't know how to tell you to pray. I only know that uh, I end up about every week with something new to pray about. So, Father, I thank you that you never stop this work. I'm learning some things about encouragement. Thank you for the voices that have spoken into my life this week in some of these seasons where I wonder if we're doing anything worth doing and then you send something along to help us. And it's all me getting in the way of you, but thank you because you're a good God. Thank you for tonight. I've had a... I've had an exciting and powerful revelation of the Jesus who accelerates water to wine, who at the end of the day is just treading the wine press, not for the joy of crushing grapes, but for the prospect of bringing forth a new vintage. And I hope I can get a sip of that in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.